You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Grace. Hi, it's Shannon. Hey, it's Katie. Hi, it's Melissa. And hey, it is Chelsea. Uh, Today, we are going to do some new stuff. Uh, As you can hear, we have some new people on our team. We're going to have intros on our socials that we'll probably hit before this episode airs. But tonight, I am going to do this episode with Melissa. And Melissa is the one who researched this, just so everyone is aware. And this is our Halloween special. So this episode is about Karen Diane Mock who was born on October 25th, 1948 in Johnstown, PA, to parents William Henry Mock and Margaret Bertha Ayers Mock. Sources varied on her siblings, but most concluded that she was the youngest of six, which is a lot of kids. She had three brothers and two sisters. All the photos of her were black and white, but a lot of the newspapers talked about how she was a pretty little blonde girl. She had the biggest smile and sweetest face. And honestly, when I looked up a picture of her, it kind of almost reminded me of Shirley Temple. She has like girls. Yeah. Oh, I see that on the document. Oh, what a cutie. Yeah. If if you look down, guys, I put pictures. Yeah, she's really, really pretty. So she was absolutely adorable, as we just discussed. And at the time of her death, Karen was only six years old and uh. she was a first grader living in Conmall Township, a small community in Cambria County. And according to Google Maps, it's about 65, 70 miles east of Pittsburgh. I'm glad you said that because I have never heard of any of those places. <laughs> Same. Yeah, I didn't know where that was. Um, On Thursday, October 28th, 1954, Karen asked her mom to go out trick-or-treating with her cousin Paul. Her neighborhood had decided to hold their trick-or-treating on that Thursday night because Halloween fell on a Sunday that year. So I'm guessing maybe they were off on Friday. Karen was all dressed up and she was wearing a Cupid doll mask, which is a mask that was modeled after a popular baby doll toy at the time. I looked up the meaning of, you know, what a Cupid doll mask means. And the results stated that, quote, the Cupid dolls were a symbol of love and innocence and modeled uh, after Cupid, which I thought was so cute and just makes it even more tragic. Uh, that is super cute. And it's really sad that, you know, it was supposed to be love and innocence. But I also get a really creepy image in my head, like a 50s doll. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the mask is really creepy. Mm, sounds like it. The other day I saw, obviously, because we're coming up on Halloween, pictures of like kids like decades ago in these really creepy men. I mean, they were pretty horrifying. I have no idea. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> I just found a picture of a Cupid doll mask. It's it's pretty bad. We'll have to put it on our socials. I feel Maybe. like it's in some yeah. horror movie, but I don't remember which one. All of or them? it looks super familiar. <laughs> yes, all of them. <laughs> So between 6.30 p.m. to 7 p.m., Karen and her cousin Paul went trick-or-treating around their neighborhood. At 7.30 p.m., cousin Paul was called home by his mother. And now a few articles mention that Paul's mom, Karen's aunt, said that Karen was peevish about Paul having to stay home. (laughs) So I thought that was cute. I could see myself at her age having an attitude because I wasn't ready to be done trick-or-treating. Same. For my son. Yeah. Oh, trick-or-treating is where it's at. We went last year. He he got invited by a kid, which hadn't happened before. 
And she only went for 20 minutes. And Landon's like, the what? <laughs> yeah. What do you even get but in 20 minutes? <laughs> she was a kindergarten. So like oh. a huge age difference. But they're on the hockey team together. So yeah, it was rough for him. He had a hard year. <laughs> oh, poor Landon. <laughs> um, yeah. So at this point, Carrie returned home and begged her mom to let her go back out trick-or-treating with friends. Mrs. Mock was hesitant as neither she or Mr. Mock could accompany Karen because it was now starting to get dark out and she wasn't familiar with the kids that Karen wanted to go out with. Now, remember, this was the 50s, so younger kids walk around the neighborhood by themselves really wasn't out of the ordinary. So Mrs. Mock finally agreed, but told Karen to be home by 8 p.m. And unfortunately, Karen never really made it home. Oh, oh. That's so sad. I feel like when I first read that, I was like, oh, my goodness, like a six year old just hanging out by herself. But then I realized it was the 50s and that was just so much more accepted, I guess, is the word. Yeah, it was supposed yeah. to be safe. Just a bunch of kids like running yeah. around outside. You didn't really think anything of it. Karen went and said goodbye to her mom and left the home to go find her friends to continue their trick or treating. At some point in the evening, Karen was separated from those friends, and this would be the last time that they would see Karen alive. Around 9 p.m., Karen's mother realized her daughter had yet to come home, and she called the police. That has to be terrifying yeah. Yeah. to just oh, yeah. realize, you know, like, oh my, like, Louis, do you push around? lost track of time, and all of a sudden it was just like, oh my goodness, what time is it, and where is Karen? Yeah, like a feeling in the pit of your stomach. And to think all these kids are out. Think how hard that must be for police to have to, especially because they're masks. Yeah, they're all dressed up. They have mm -hmm. to sort through all those kids. Oh, gosh. So police, firemen, and neighbors reacted immediately, and a large search party began combing the town looking for Karen. I was honestly kind of shocked that the police agreed to a search so quickly, and I'm glad they give the whole, well, she is probably just out with her friends and lost track of time excuse. However, part of the reason they reacted so quickly is because earlier in the night in the same neighborhood as Karen, that Karen was trick-or-treating in, a scar-faced man had attempted to abduct a 14-year-old girl, and we will call her Annabelle. I found her name, but only in one source, and I don't want to spread her info out there. And luckily, Annabelle was able to get away. That's a yeah. real-life horror movie. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad, though, those police took it seriously. Yeah. You know, I could see them being like, oh, she's still out with her friends. She lost track of time. You know, call us back. I think even in the 50s, if my six-year-old did not come home on time, I would be livid if people didn't take me seriously. Like, my child, my small child is missing. And you're telling me, yeah, like, true. just wait. That would be her, unbearable. Her age probably had a lot to do with it. Because I could see a little bit older. I mean, I could see her age also just getting caught up, like, wanting to be out with friends. But they probably took it more seriously because, like, even if they didn't think something bad happened, she could easily get right. lost with all the craziness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, Karen's nude body was found a few hours mm -hmm. later around midnight in the East Taylor Township Cemetery by a local firefighter. And he was actually out looking for her. And he went in the cemetery just to turn around so he could head back into town. And when he went to turn around, like his lights hit on something and he realized uh, pretty quickly that it was Karen. That's so sad. Yeah. The cemetery was located about two miles away from the mock home. Pieces of her costume and her full bag of candy was laying there. Oh. And um, a couple articles talked about how there was like a shiny red apple in the candy bag and I can just imagine that, and it's so terrifying and tragic. 
Um, Karen was found with extensive bruises all over her body and had blood running from her mouth. Police later said that Karen's fist was clenched and she had put up a fight against her attacker. What? So that's that's heartbreaking. Isn't that sad? Yeah. Totally. Coroner Joseph Govar, who conducted the autopsy, concluded that Karen died of suffocation, uh, stating that clothing or some bulky object was used to strangle the child. The coroner did note that Karen was not criminally assaulted which I took as she wasn't sexually assaulted. Which is odd that she's nude. However, yeah. yeah. They might not have the testing that they do today that they probably had. I mean, well, and it also they didn't have the testing back then that they have today. It might have been so he could use yeah. the yeah. clothing to strangle her. That's another good point. Another good point. However, it later came out in a court that he did try to sexually assault her, but was unsuccessful. <sighs> Over the next few days, police worked to find Karen's killer. In interviews, the Connema, Con, I don't know how to say that. Connema. Connema police. Thank you. Yep. Uh, George Fesco said he believes that Karen was killed by a sex maniac and stated, we are rounding up all known sex degenerates for questioning. As the news of Karen's death reached her family, her mother cried, oh God, oh merciful God, I wish I had made her stay in. Uh. Which is honestly so heartbreaking. Because she was kind of on the fence about it. And you could tell that she obviously cared about her. And like, it was like that one decision. I can't I, even imagine the guilt she must have felt. No. Which, of course, exactly. it's not her fault at all. But just, you know, to be like, no, you're not going. And then to give in. And then for that to happen. Oh, my goodness. Her poor mom. Yeah. Now, how do you know how they figured out that he tried to sexually assault her, but it it didn't work? He later admitted that he okay. tried. Ugh. Yeah, he later admitted in court that he tried, but it didn't happen. Just horrible on top of horrible. Yeah, good for her. I mean, yeah. good girl. She did what she was supposed yeah. to do. So over the next few days, Pennsylvania State Troopers worked on the case and eventually received a tip telling the police to look at a local man, Harry Gossard. Harry Gossard, who was 39 at the time of the murder, was born on April 2nd, 1915. He was the oldest of four, born to Daniel Lester Gossard and Morna C. McFeasters Gossard. Harry was married to Ruth Warfel in 1935, but divorced a short time later in 1937. Uh, a few sources said he was married and divorced a second time, but there was no more information available online. He was a former merchant marine who is currently unemployed. At the time of the murder, he was living with his mother in a home not far from Karen. So he was pretty much one of their neighbors. Hmm. Um, Gossard was actually already known to local police, having had a criminal record that included moral offenses. He had already served 90 days in prison for... Um, these moral offenses, and he had spent time in federal prison for stealing from the U.S. Postal Service. What? They yeah. take it serious. Like, what? that yeah. is a serious what you crime. Steal from, what do you steal from yeah. USPS? Mail. I, I wish I knew. <laughs> I know. They didn't say. Look at, look at you wish checks. for the best, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Probably, yeah. like Social Security or something. Yeah, that's true. So there was one source that says that he tried to lure children in the past, um, and he may have done time for that, but I could not corroborate that, so take it with a grain of salt. 
Um, I did try to find out what a moral offense in the 1950s meant, because I assume it's different than today. In today's law, according to Scott D. Pollock and Associates Law Firm, it's a crime involving moral turpitude and a criminal or offensive act that can be defined as vile and or insulting to one's moral compass. It's a crime that disrespects and antagonizes social norms. But then when I looked it up, it can range from anywhere from perjury to animal cruelty to murder. So there's a wide range of things it can be. I was going to say, that sounds very subjective. (laughs) Yeah. I just want to capture everything. Like the most... Yeah, exactly. It's like the most watered down definition, but... I was like, there's a big difference between perjury and murder, so I'm not (laughs) sure how we... How we have that big of a range, but... On November 2nd, 1954, Harry Gossard was picked up while driving back from Philadelphia, where he had been visiting his sister, and he was booked on suspicion of murder. PA State Police Sergeant James Blair said that they received a tip about Gossard, but he was already on their suspect list from the beginning. They had witness testimony saying that a car matching Gossard's was in the area of the cemetery the night of the murder. Police were also able to make plaster casts of tire markers, mm -mm, casts of tire marks taken from the crime scene, which I will say that's no longer admissible in court because I've uh, I've heard people try to do it. I think they can like match it, but it's not like 100% accuracy, like a fingerprint. Uh. Right. I think unless there's something um, off about the specific tire, like if it has a specific hole in it or something, you really can't tell if it's... Yeah. That tire. But they claim that this matched Gossard's car. And once brought into the station, Sergeant Blair stated that Gossard refused a lie detector test, which we now now know is true. A crime of 101 to say, you know, no to that. <laughs> but back in the 50s, like that was like you're basically admitting to doing it. They totally wanted you to do it. I don't know. They still do, but, and they still try to make it seem like yeah. you're guilty if you don't. But we just know, since they're not admissible in court, and they, it's really like a 50-50 toss-up at yeah. this point, whether it is. it's accurate. I feel, like if you say, I feel like if you say no, you look guilty, but at the same time, I would 110% say no yeah. because they're so unreliable. So it's kind of like a lose-lose situation, but... I do know in the 50s, it was definitely taken much more seriously. For sure. I recently heard about a case where they did like a lie detector test, but they didn't use, um, they used the voice. They um, analyzed the voice and I had never heard that before. I thought that was strange. I've heard that in a couple cases, but I still don't think it's very... Like a voice stress test. Yeah. I don't, I still don't think it's very reliable. So hours after questioning by police, Gossard confessed to abducting and murdering six-year-old Karen Mock. He signed this statement and revealed that he had strangled the little girl. Uh, According to Gossard, on the night of the murder, he admitted that he saw Karen walking alone and he was somehow able to convince her to get in his car. He then drove Karen to the cemetery where her body was later found. After Gossard unclothed Karen, he laid on top of her, and this is when he, quote, blacked out. Okay. Um, Yeah. Isn't that convenient? Mm -hmm. Um, When he woke up, he realized Karen was dead, so that's when he fled to Philadelphia to stay with his sister. I hate that. This makes 
This makes me so angry because it's like he tried to abduct a 14-year-old girl and she got away and he lived near Karen. So he probably was like, oh, this girl is like, she'll recognize me or something, you know, like a friendly face in the midst of all of this. And then that's what he does. And if you're going to own up to kidnapping her and killing her, like, please uh, at least admit that this six-year-old girl fought for her life and didn't let you sexually assault her. I blacked out. I didn't know what I was doing. Right, sure. A voice told me to do it. I was not in control. Blah, blah, blah. Just man up. And it's just sad because knowing, even if he didn't get Karen, it probably would have been someone else. It seemed like he was on a mission that night. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wonder if she realized, like, who he was, if she knew him as her neighbor. Um, And, you know, maybe he offered her a ride home and your neighbor so of course you're gonna say sure like that would be great yeah so on november 3rd harry gazard was taken to his arraignment hearing in front of the justice of peace stephen mcganka where he waived his right to a hearing regarding the charges being brought against him mcganka ordered him held without bond while waiting for action by the cambria county grand jury a lot of articles commented on how he trembled and how nervous he was. But personally, I don't think he was nervous about the court. I think that what he was nervous was because of how angry the people in his town were. There was a heavy police presence surrounding him and he was taken to jail over 15 miles away. District Attorney Fred Fees said feeling, feeling is running very high in Honoma. The media went wild and dubbed him the trick-or-treat slayer. I hate the names they give people. Yeah. Like, makes me so mad. Don't give them cool names. Call them something stupid. Exactly. (laughs) But I mean, I can imagine if a six-year-old was killed in your town, of course emotions are going to be high. Of course you're going to be horrified and, you know, out for blood. Because, I mean, like, when Jennifer Brown was killed here, we were all outraged. Imagine if she was a six-year-old girl. We would be marching in the streets. Absolutely. And, yeah, I think that's why he was so upset in court. I don't think it has anything to do with, um, you know, feeling remorse. I think he was like, oh, boy, if these cops were to step away from me for just a second, there would be problems. I don't know. I remember a case. I'm pretty sure it's after this, but um, a man had i guess raped this guy's child and while on the news he was being brought in i think for court the father yep. shot him dead ben uh, was literally brought this yes. up two days ago <laughs> like yeah, yeah and i was like i can't believe that doesn't happen more often honestly yeah hmm. yeah on december 7th 1954 gossard was indicted for murder He was slated to go to trial on December 13th, but his newly appointed attorneys were able to push the trial back, stating they didn't have adequate time to build their defense. In January of 1955, Harry Gossard entered a guilty plea and his court-appointed attorneys requested their client be committed to the Torrance State Hospital for 30 days and undergo a psych evaluation. Judge Ivan McKendrick and Judge George Griffith complied with the request. They also decided that after his 30 days were completed and his evaluation was reviewed, he would be brought back to court to determine his level of guilt and what his sentence would be. His lawyers stated, quote, 
Justice would be best served if the court would order a mental evaluation of the defendant to guide the court in determining his disposition. However, because Gossard had been arrested in the past for sexual offenses and because he had already pled guilty to murder, he was barred from claiming insanity in his defense argument. Good. Good. Yeah. On March 2nd, 1955, a three-judge court began hearing testimonies to determine Gossard's level of guilt. The prosecution was said to have 35 witnesses to testify against Gossard. One of the people who testified for the prosecution was Annabelle, the 14-year-old who had been the victim of a failed abduction the same evening as Karen's murder. She testified that Harry Gossard was the man that tried to abduct her. Good for her. I can't imagine how stressful that must be. And I mean, for a 14-year-old to be able to stand up in court and point to her accuser, like that takes gut. Absolutely. Yeah, she was really brave. On March 5th, Harry Gossard took the stand in his own defense where he told the court he was guilty of murder and explained how he lured six-year-old Karen Malk into his car and drove to the cemetery where he smothered her after he had abnormal sexual relations with her. I honestly don't know what that means. I don't Um, ever want to know what that means, honestly. Yeah, I don't want to know what it means, so I couldn't find what it means, and yeah, I'm okay with that. But he did claim that after he blacked out, he just couldn't believe she was dead when he awoke up from this supposed blackout. Um, on April 19th, 1955, the three court, the three judge court ordered Harry Gossard to be put to death for his crimes against Karen Ma. Again, good. <laughs> yep. Yep. In November of 1955, Gossard appealed his death sentence and it was denied. In December of 1955, Gossard again appealed to the state pardons board asking for his death sentence to be commuted to a life imprisonment due to his mental illness. His psychiatrist, Dr. Robert Leopold, agreed with Gossard saying that Gossard should be committed to a state hospital where treatment of patients of this kind are made available by the state. He did go on to state that Gossard would not learn anything from prison and would probably commit more sexual offenses if he was ever let out. So what was his official diagnosis? It kept kind of going back and forth. They could both sides, the prosecution and the defense, could find doctors who would claim, uh, like, they found three doctors who said he's definitely insane, and then they found three doctors who said, no, he's perfectly fine. Okay, gotcha. So they really could never reach a formal agreement, I guess, a formal diagnosis. Okay. On June 4th of 1956, at the age of 41 years old, Harry Gossard was put to death by electrocution. He was pronounced dead at 10.04 p.m. His last words were amen in response to a prayer read aloud by Reverend Kenneth Anderson, the prison chaplain. Um, little, little fact, his body was actually, he donated his body to medical science. It most likely went to University of Pennsylvania. Oh, that's interesting. He was the first prisoner um, who had actually ever done that in I believe the state of Pennsylvania, like no one else had ever willed their body to science. Huh. Hmm. I want to know if they found anything. You know how sometimes they can tell if they had um, maybe 
uh, brain damage or something, you know, as a child, maybe they hit their head too hard or something happened and there was brain damage. I It would be interesting to see what they found, if they found anything. I would like to know that too. And I wonder if anything could be tested now. Probably not, or probably not very high quality samples, but who knows? So talking about brain damage, I'm uh, sure you've all heard that uh, football player something Hernandez, uh, but there was mm-hmm. a documentary out on Netflix and he had so many... Um, What's the concussions? Thank you. Yep. Yes. And uh, they went over their findings because uh, it was pretty extensive and they linked it to uh, yeah, violence. He was, and, uh, he was in prison for murder. And, I feel like uh, Ed is probably. Yeah, and actually, I think he hung himself in prison too. Yes. He died in prison. So. Yeah. Well, I know a lot okay. of. I play rugby, as everyone knows, and I know they're trying to implement a lot of things in football from rugby uh, because there's not as many concussions in football as rugby. And if you ask Shannon, she came to mass game. Um, I think rugby is a little bit more violent than football. I'm sure there's people who will disagree. Rugby is rough. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No. But the way they hit is. Yeah, there's no pads. Uh, the way they hit is just completely different than football, and it's less likely to have a concussion. Not saying that it doesn't happen, but the amount of concussions from football from early age to like Pee Wee League all the way up to okay. professional, it's astounding. Yeah. Head injuries are no joke, especially when you're under a certain age. It can just yeah mess up your whole life. Yeah, I feel like if you look back at a lot of the serial killers, so many of them had some sort of significant head trauma, you know, like under the age of 15, Mm -hmm. maybe 12 even. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. But yeah, I would love to know those findings as well. And that concludes our special episode. Thanks for listening. Happy Halloween. That's all we have for this episode of Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victim, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by Chelsea Brown. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. The music and production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.